Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the true cost of OTIF failure with Andrew Lynch. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. No relation. Maybe. Oh, yeah. That's, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah, that may, maybe somewhere back in the old country. Most definitely. <laughs> Are you of Irish descent? Yeah, well, I'm a bit of a mutt. So, uh, you know, I think there's Called like American. one, yeah, there's <laughs> one guy that's Irish, you know, like 10 generations back and I carry the name, but uh, there's a little bit of everything inside of me. A lot of Viking, it turns out. My sister just did an ancestry. Oh, really? Yeah, it's funny yeah. because I did my uh, ancestry DNA and I was already doing this probably, I've been doing it for a while and I finally did my ancestry DNA and my Ancestry. I mean, I'm, I'm American through and through. I, my, I was born here, so were my parents, so were my grandparents, and most of my great grandparents. Three of the four. But I'm a hundred percent Irish DNA, and it's funny because people have said in these groups, they're like, people living in Ireland are hundred percent Irish DNA. Yeah, that's like, borderline. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, there are people who are related to me on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> I was I was looking at my ancestry and I said to my mom, oh, this person is Reardon here. And I said, and my mom goes, oh, she's a very attractive lady. I go, yes, she is. And I go, yeah, and she's a lynch over here. So she's related. On, so she, I call her my super cousin. And I go, and then what's crazy is I go, and I find her very attractive. <laughs> See, this is how these problems happen. You should, not meet, you should not meet anybody that you're going to go out with at a family function. Absolutely not. Anyway, enough of my blather. So I'm really happy to get you on my podcast. I was talking to Jeff D'Angelo, and he has multiple times said, when are you going to have Andrew, Andrew Lynch on your podcast? And so finally, I, I now know why he wanted me to have you on my podcast. You're going to be a great guest. So thanks, Andrew, please introduce yourself and your company. And where are you living? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so my name is Andrew Lynch. I live in Columbus, Ohio, where Zipline is headquartered. I moved here 14 years ago to start this business with two partners. I am uh, married and have been for going on seven years now. And I have two kids, a a three-year-old and a two-year-old. So I am busy at home, which is why you see me in an office now. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up uh, primarily in Cincinnati, Ohio, went to Miami University where I studied finance and, and sort of fell backwards into logistics and fell in love with it after college. So where'd you study? Where'd you go to college? I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Oh, very nice. Very and my nice. wife's actually from Troy, Michigan. So she's from your neck of the woods. Yeah, not too far from me. Not too far. I used to work there many times. I, there's a lot of engineering companies up there that I worked at. So you went to Miami of Ohio. And then what was your first job out of school? My first job out of school was with C.H. Robinson Worldwide, the largest nice. non-asset based retail in the world. I took a, a role in carrier sales. I had planned on going to law school all through college. That was my plan. I, you know, I took the LSAT and, and got into the school of my choice. And then I looked at my student loan debt accrual and looked at what it looked like in the future and said, you know, I'm going to go to work for a little while first. And, and like I said, I just I fell in love with logistics. I love to connect to people. Carrier sales worked really well for me because I'm extremely ADD. And so it was a perfect fit. I got to move to Chicago and I had a great experience. I lived there for six years with Robinson and loved every minute of it. So when you left Robinson, where did you end up? I left Robinson to start Zipline. Very so, nice. 
at, uh, yeah, the ripe old age of 26, I moved to Columbus, Ohio, where I really didn't have much of a connection to at the time, but it's very advantageous logistically. It was, uh, oh, yeah. you know, and we knew it would be a welcoming environment. And so uh, my partners and I, one of whom I met at work, uh, the other was my brother, who at the time was in investment banking. That's a good partner to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was with Lehman Brothers, and we all know how that went. But yeah, you know, we started crafting what we believed was going to be a differentiating strategy in 2006 and opened our doors in 2007. So what was the hole you saw in the market? What did you think you guys could do different and better than the rest? I mean, I think the theme would have been that we saw commoditization, right? So when, you know, when I was in carrier sales, the same carriers that, you know, the same network of carriers that I was leveraging, you know, one day I might be picking up roll stock paper or scrap aluminum. And the next day I might be picking up LCD televisions or some high end consumer electronic. And it just didn't stand to reason to me that those two industries should be playing in the same logistics sandbox, right? So we recognized a severe service gap, I think, at the time, and definitely a gap in specialization. I mean, there was no one, and there there really, quite honestly, still really isn't anyone out there openly stating, this is all we do. Right. And we just, you know, in general, we think the commoditization of a function as critical as logistics just does a disservice to everyone involved. Right. So you guys focus, what do you focus on? We focus on the consumer packaged good industry and healthcare products. So um, we work with retailers. So explain what you mean by CPG, consumer packaged goods. Yeah, that can be anything from products that you would find in Home Depot, right? Uh, kind of home improvement products, then anything that's on a shelf, to food and bev, to consumer electronics, to vitamins and protein shakes and nutritional right. products like that. Yeah, and it's generally, when you say CPG, you usually mean that's more like food or toilet paper or pop, I think falls in that, soda, Absolutely. whatever you whatever you drink. And it's compared to like durable goods like buying a car or you know, stuff that's larger, that's uh, going to hang around for a while. So usually yeah. CPG is that high turnover that logistics guys like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's, you know, it's non-industrial, right? So it focuses us on a sort of a narrower set of modes that we're going to operate in, right? We, we don't do much flatbed, right? Because it's not a lot of right. consumer packs because we want flatbed. Yeah. Well, I like the fact that you're focusing and, you know, this is, this comes up all the time on my podcast is I did some digital marketing before. I don't do, do so much anymore, but I still do some with my partners over at Sunnyant. And one of the things I've always insisted upon when I worked with logistics and transportation companies is in your main navigation, there should be something that says industries we serve or expertise or specialization. And the idea that you say, oh, well, we do, we do everything. And you hear fewer people say that, but when you serve you're everything to everybody, you really aren't. <laughs> you're probably more likely nobody to everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you go to a restaurant and there's like a 30-page menu. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> yeah nothing, I hate that. <laughs> nothing here is going to be good. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, what do you specialize in? Uh, meatballs and hamburgers yeah, yeah. and are vegan on page 27? <laughs> no, right. no that, that ain't going to work. I guess what's fried? I'll take the chicken fingers. <laughs> right. Something you can't screw up. Right. So when we were prepping, you talked a lot about just the, so some of the stuff we were talking about. You talked a lot about this idea of how the failure of the transactional model and how we have to get away from that. And then this kind of led to us talking a lot about OTIF, or please describe what OTIF is for us. OTIF stands for On Time in Full. I would use it as a catch-all for the scorecarding, fulfillment, and penalty programs that every major, mid-major, and regional grocer, big box retailer, C-store distributor 
in the country has implemented over the course of really the last eight to 10 years. Right. And it's funny, I only ran across, I think it three, four years ago is the first time I heard OTIF. And I looked at it, I was like, oh, that makes sense. I understand why they're doing it. And when we were prepping, you kind of mentioned, you know, the fines are just the beginning. So let's talk about, so today's topic again is the true cost of OTIF failure with my friend, not relative, Andrew Lynch. <laughs> and so what are the true costs? Well, first off, talk about the, the obvious one, which is the fines. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Walmart specific and every retailer, one, every retailer is going to scorecard you differently and every retailer is going to fine you differently. For Walmart, it's a function of 3% of cost of goods sold on all cases that fall outside of OTIF compliance, which is 98% on time in full. And it's narrowed to an individual day that the product has to arrive, not a window of days. But every retailer handles it differently. But, you know, 3% cost of goods sold is an enormous penalty to pay. So you, you mentioned the 98%. So I have to, 98% of my stuff has to be on time and full. So if I have 100 shipments to Walmart, is 100 orders, I'll say, to Walmart, 98 have to be on time and full. Anything, so it was that 2% can be late? Two, yeah, I mean, they'll allow 2% two of those, to be. Okay. So anything after that, I'm getting the cost of goods sold. So if there was $100,000 worth of stuff on each one of those two trucks that came late, I'm getting hit 3% on each one. That's a $6,000 fine. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there are other retailers that just have flat fees. Right. So that would assume if I had 100 trucks, I could have 98 be on time. But if I got to 96 on time, I would get that extra fee that would be three grand a truck, six grand. Woo. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, you know, the penalties are enormous and it's understandable, right? I mean, you know, shoppers experience out of stocks on one in three store visits. That's before COVID. And there were trillions of dollars in sales that retailers were missing out on as a result of this. And that's why, you know, over the course of time, when I think I started in this industry oh, focusing on Walmart only, but I think every retailer evolved in this way. You know, Walmart had a program where you could deliver two days ahead or two days after a due date. And I believe the executive that implemented OTIF referred to Walmart operating with about 30% inventory compliance during that time, right? I mean, how do you run a retailer when right. you're only 30% compliant? Well, especially with them where their focus is on everyday low costs. Yeah. And again, you kind of pointed out earlier, it sounds like OTIF, like, oh my God, they're killing us. They don't care about their suppliers, blah, blah, blah. And you pointed out when we were prepping for this, that geez, oh Pete, that is just the beginning you're getting hit for those, let's just use that volume of $3,000 per truck. But the, the true costs are way more than that. So explain why they're way more than that. Well, I mean, it, you know, beyond just the fact that you're going to get a fine for not being there on time, the odds are the reason that that due date was in place and that that program was in place is that your product needed to get to that distribution center in order to be on the shelf, in order to avoid out of stocks. And out-of-stocks are unrecoverable lost sales, right? There's nothing you can do to make up for it. It's just, it's pure gross margin that you're, that you're sacrificing. You've made the product. You just didn't get it there on time. So, yeah, you know. And, and so it's almost like detention from them, their perspective, because if you miss, let's just say the out-of-stock, so let's just say that it was $100,000 worth of potato chips, then they don't get to sell. That <laughs> brand doesn't get to sell that. Walmart doesn't get to sell that. Well, I guess the brand sells, but there's a loss at some point where... Somebody came in to buy chips and they didn't get to sell them. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, at the time, the retailer would lose that, right? And that's really what this is. I mean, this is about retailers putting the onus on their suppliers to get product where it needs to be on time. Right? In 2018, 
24% of Amazon's retail revenue was attributed to out of stocks in a store. A prime user is like 65% more likely than a non-prime user to be standing in the store and looking at an out-of-stock shelf, go on Amazon and order that product to their home. Oh my God. So, so say that one more time. That's a big, that's a big stat. Yeah. And again, we, you know, we survey retail buyers because of the way that we focus on this industry. We stay really close. Say that statistic again, 24% of what? 24% of Amazon's 2018 retail revenue was attributed directly to out of stocks in store. They went over to Best Buy or they went over to Walmart or where? Yep, exactly. They were standing there looking Man, at that's a- That's crazy. You know, I mean, look at during COVID, right? They were standing there looking at an empty shelf of paper towel. Right. They went on amazon.com and they ordered a, you know, a 24 pack and had it delivered to their home. Yeah, it's interesting because my daughter went online and she said, oh, we can't buy toilet paper. This is during COVID. And then she went and she kept saying, I just keep going on Amazon. At some point, they'll have it. And then they did. And it was interesting because she wasn't saying, I'll keep driving by the store. It's a lot easier to just go, I'll just check out Amazon. So getting back to it, the true cost of failure, the OTIF failure, the first is the fines. And that's very obvious to everybody. There's a big fine and everyone's going to notice that, of course. The second is lost sales. It's not on the shelves. It, it can't be, you know, there's a, a sale that's forever lost. Number three, what's the third loss related to OTIF? Well, certainly retailer relationships. We keep a really close eye on how retailers engage with their suppliers. And we, we focus very heavily on behalf of our clients, which are the brands and suppliers primarily, on how to make sure that they have healthy and growing relationships with their retailers. So we survey retail buyers regularly. And we find that 73% of retail buyers have ended relationships over failure to deliver on time. 100% say that it affects their willingness to work with a brand if they cannot meet fulfillment guidelines. And you know, on top of that, the average buyer in any given category manages between six and 11 brands. And so you know, they've got a broad array of selection and you know, they just are not motivated to put up with, with out-of-stocks. Yep. And you mentioned when we were prepping that there's a weed-out thing happening also. We see fewer SKUs in a lot of stores. So if I go to Costco, fewer SKUs. I think you mentioned Aldi's, fewer SKUs, right? And what were some other stores that have a lot less SKUs than the traditional retailer? Yeah, I mean, you know, Trader Joe's was built on that model. Uh, you've got Lidl, which is making a pretty big impact in sort of that smaller store, smaller footprint category. And they're proving it out. And, you know, these studies have been done a thousand times over where if you've got 26 flavors of jelly on a table, one day versus the next day only having three flavors of jelly on the table on like a, you know, these sample desks that you'll move 40 and 50% more product on that lower skew table. People just get sort of assortment exhaustion as a result of this. But the fundamentals were kind of already there for, for skew rationalization. But man, COVID really drove that point home that it doesn't make any sense for us to have 26 kinds of jelly on our shelf if 24 of them can't get here on time because they don't have a strong customer supply chain. So these retailers are using these programs as a weed out function, right? If you, you know, if you're Walmart, you know, I've got to narrow my SKUs. I've got to make sure my shelves are stocked, right? I can knock out, I can kill both of those birds with this one stump. I can say, if you don't have my shelves stocked, you're the one paying the price and I'm going to find you to death on your way out the door. But if you do have a good customer supply chain, you're going to grow with us, right? We're going to expand your shelf space, if not your skews. It kind of reminds me, you know, if you ever hear a friend of mine, Steve Elwell, does a lot of, not so much anymore, but he was an executive recruiter and he was very knowledgeable of HR stuff. And he said, you know, when you have 
employee compensation. He said, you know, the ones who are the very best, you keep paying them more and more and more. And he says, the ones who aren't the very best see incrementally very little coming their way. And he says, because they're going to leave you. That's not a good fit. So it's almost the same thing here. He said, we're going to find you on your way out the door. So the fine is the most obvious one. Everyone talks about that. Number two is this lost sales that there's a reason they're fining you. They're losing money. So there's also this relationship in big box and weed out. So those three things, fines, lost sales, relationship, big box. What's the next thing that is a cost that people sometimes miss when they're talking about OTIF failure? Yeah, it's really more that OTIF failure is a symptom, right? It's not, it's, it's probably not the disease. You know, if you're missing on OTIF, the odds are that your organization is leaving money on the table throughout different parts of the supply right. chain, you know, whether or not you're acting on your lead time, you know, effectively, or are you getting your raw materials in the key locations effectively, or is your production planning operating the way? Right. We turn a lot of shippers around by coming in and saying, hey, you know, you've got this person that every time they get an order, they check inventory and then they send it to the carrier. Well, there's no thought process behind that, right? It's, it's You're just acting and you're acting tactically as opposed to you know, taking a step back and understanding when does my customer want this order? Is that inventory useful for other orders that are a little bit more urgent? And just, you know, kind of focusing your efforts on a more aligned way across the organization instead of just my job shipping, so orders come in and I ship them. Right. And so this operational failure, things are not going right. That's kind of what you're getting at. And there's a cost to that that you don't even know. Nobody knows. There's no way to put a precise dollar amount out. But if you get maybe up, down, a lot of spikes in your planning, a lot of spikes in your sales, it's a difficult way. You can't figure out, you know, what are we selling? So you need to go back and figure that out. And one of the things we talked about offline, and I, I've lived it, I've experienced it, is the involuntary sampling. So talk a little bit about that. And that's a huge cost. Yeah, and one that is really, you know, we're just starting to understand. But it goes like this, and involuntary sampling, we're trying, I want to like put a little TM next to that. We're working on on getting that associated directly with us. But it's essentially, you know, it's that retailer telling their supplier, hey, look, I'm not going to be the one that loses a sale because you can't get your product on the shelves. I'm going to fill your customer's cart with your competitor's product. And so, you know, I always use carbonated beverage as my example, because I think there's just been so much disruption in that space from the CPG's perspective, but also because I also experienced this in my real life where, you know, I do up my grocery shopping in my house and I order my groceries from Kroger.com. And it's happened to me before where every week I order a, you know, a 12 pack of orange Spindrift. And before I did the click and pick thing, you know, if I got there and they didn't have orange, I might've maybe tried another flavor but odds were I was just going to kind of go without it that week, right? Or maybe I order it from Amazon, you know. But in the age of click and pick, what happens is I arrive and the person that's loading my groceries says, hey, we had a substitution. Orange Supreme wasn't in stock. We put orange Spindrift in your cart. And I think everyone accepts that substitution, right? It's pretty rare that I say no to a substitution. I've done it before when they're like, we didn't have one pound of chicken, so we put eight pounds of chicken in your cart. I'm like, all right, well, I'll pass on that. But, you know, in general, people accept, especially if it's just one brand to the other, they accept that substitution. And that's the store capturing their revenue, right? The store wins, really, out of anybody. The brand loses right. that sale, right? The boy loses that sale. I'm going home with a 12-pack of their competitor's product. Only one loser. <laughs> There's one I loser. Like it, I'm gone. Exactly. I told you my own story of this. This happened, I'm thinking, in the 80s when Diet Coke came out. 
I was a big diet Pepsi drinker. So I worked at a Ford facility in engineering and the junk truck would come and I'd buy soup or a sandwich, an apple, whatever. And they always had diet Pepsi on this truck. And so I'd say, can I have a bottle of diet? We didn't have a machine in our building. That's how long ago it was. And I remember they'd say, oh, we're out of diet Pepsi, but we have diet Coke. And I was like, I don't drink diet Coke. So many times I would say, no, thanks. But after a while, I was like, okay, give me one of those diet Cokes. To this day, I drink Diet Coke. And I keep thinking, I drink, this is my vice among, I like to think very few vices, but this is one of my top vices. Everyone who knows me knows I drink a lot of Diet Coke. And they cost themselves a fortune by not getting that Diet Pepsi where it needed to be. And I'm just one person who drinks a lot of Diet Coke. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, how many are there of you that that happened with or something similar has happened with? My doctor told me one time, he said, oh, he goes, anyone who drinks Diet Coke drinks a lot of it. I was like, Oh, all right. So it's. I think I agree with that. And, you know, think about how it plays out for retailers, too, because they that's their biggest fear, right? When you think about that stat we talked about earlier, that Amazon, you know, recognized 24% of their retail revenue from out of stocks. And people were predicting this during COVID that, oh, wow, the number of people that are willing to buy their groceries from Amazon has gone up. You know, like retail e commerce interactions went up 5x during COVID right. for grocery. And all of a sudden, if they're saying, well, hey, if I can get my LaCroix at Amazon, well, why, you know, why can't they also bring me my Annie's mac and cheese? Right. Why can't they also bring me? And all of a sudden, you know, I'm slowly shifting to this full delivery shopper. And that is what's keeping Kroger executives up at night. Right. right? I mean, and all of this stuff, the skew rationalization, the OTIF penalties, everything that they're doing. Right is in service to avoiding that. Right. And what's also interesting is, you know, in this, the old retail model was very much planned, right? Where you say, I need you to send me this much of this product every week. And I could tell you how much I was going to ask for three weeks from now, three months from now, more or less, right? So it smoothed things out. Now, when we move over to e-commerce, and when we talk about retail, we have to talk about e-commerce more, especially when we got CPG customers. That's demand-driven. You walk into, into your fulfillment center that day and you don't know what we're going to sell. You have an idea. I mean, it's a very much, there's some of that retail, but it is, we're kind of moving from planned to consumer-driven demand. I mean, it's going to be more pull and less push. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And, you know, we see it with our clients' orders, right? We've got a, a lot of clients that outsource their logistics function to us. And so we receive their customers' orders directly. Right. And, you know, you'll see that I'll just stick with Walmart because we'll be consistent. But that Walmart for one DC, one week to the next, they might order a half a truckload or three truckloads. And it literally changes every single week. Right. And, you know, again, if you want to go to some sort of like more traditional, logistics model where you're, you know, waterfall tendering and you've got a routing guy. Well, how's that work for right. you when you've got to have a truck one week and three trucks the next? How do you gain, you know, committed capacity right. on the back of that? Right. And you know what's interesting with all of these problems that we're describing and the, the, the opportunities to do well, there's also opportunities to lose the business. Again, if you if you don't have your OTIF numbers, not only are you losing money operationally, not only are you losing sales, you're potentially going to lose a channel. You're going to lose the Walmart. You're going to lose the Costco, whoever you're serving. And I think that's especially true for smaller brands because they're supposed to be earning their keep. It's different if you're someone like Procter & Gamble and Unilever, who I'm pretty sure do a good job. 
they have such an enormous piece of your shelf space, you're not going to kick them out. But the fledgling brand, I know you work with some of those fledgling brands, they can't take the chance. I mean, they're trying to earn their stripes. They're 100 years behind some of these other big brands. So they can't fail an OTIF. No, no. And, and, you know, I'll give it to you two ways. First and foremost, there was just a Food Marketing Institute study that I think we've been publishing a little bit on in some of our material. They did it with Boston Consulting Group with a basket of like the 10 largest CPGs in North America. Mondelez, Kimberly Clark, you know, Coca-Cola, right? I mean, I'll name all the big ones. And their on-time and full performance was 85% before COVID. Not a good score, at least in not the way that we operate. It dropped down to the mid-70s during COVID and has not improved since, while their costs went up by 37%. So those guys are, they're getting fined. And I had a, a director of supply chain at one of those companies, I'll, I'll leave his, the company name out, tell me that they were willing to spend an extra $10 million to make sure that they hit OTIF, that they were the big box brand that hit OTIF. So they do care, right? They care immensely. The problem that their results show is that they're structurally incapable, right? that their methods are just not leading to the results that right. they're trying to get. Right. They can... You can't buy your way to retail fulfillment performance. Right. You can strategize your way to it for the same amount that you're paying today, but just spending more money isn't going to solve your problem. Right. And you know, there's an old, I'm going to botch the old saying, but basically there's there's a saying I've seen that says that logistics transforms chaos to order. And, you know, if you look at your 3PL or your brokers or whoever your partners are as just as transactional guys who go, oh yeah, they pick it up and they deliver it and they're, I don't pay them for their brains. I don't pay them to take <laughs> turn this chaos into order. Then you're going to get what you paid for. If you want to get those OTIF scores, you need, and again, I think that in a lot of ways, production, we all understand production. The problem, what we don't understand is the difference between what's being pulled and what I'm pushing, right? And somebody in the middle has to be the buffer <laughs> between what we made and what is being pulled to the shelves. And it has to get in order. And again, I think that order is going to come to the logistics guys. I mean, I can dive down such a rabbit hole with this. Uh, you know, we do say generally that like, if all that rate, you know, if you go out and you get a rate quote, if all that you're getting is a truck, then you're overpaying. If all your logistics provider is delivering you is a cheap rate for a truck, you're overpaying no matter what that rate right. is. Because there's so much more that a logistics right. partner can and should be doing for you. Right. That is, that's far beyond, the truck is the easy part. Right. I mean, not right now, but normally the truck is the easy part. Right? End to end. End to end is how I, again, I come from a big supply chain automotive. I guarantee you, these guys are talking end to end. And so when we talk about visibility and it's for three or four days, that's great. But what I want is I want end to end visibility. I want order to cash. Help me. I need partners like, and again, I love the fact that you guys specialize and you can say, Hey, we understand CPG. We understand healthcare from the time the order goes in to the time you get paid. We want to be that partner, not that truck. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's wild. I mean, I can't tell you how few clients, at least when we first meet them, even know what their OTIF penalties are. 
and, and that's across the board, right? I mean, leaving why I keep saying OTIP, I feel like Walmart's going to like feel like I'm, I'm picking on it. Not they probably can't, but a lot of people don't even understand right. the repercussions. They think they're saving money. You know, there's logistics folks out there that are like, I saved 50 grand in transportation, you know, this quarter. And there's a chief revenue officer in that same building. Like, how is there a half million dollars in out of stocks? Right. right. You know, this is an interesting thing. I know we talked about some, we'll talk about this more at the end of this podcast. But when we were prepping, you talked about, you know, what it takes to win in retail and how you guys have done some webinars on that. And what's interesting to me is for every dollar in OTIF fines, there is, let's just say for every $1 I spend in OTIF fines, I'm guessing there's another eight, ten dollars that's out there that you didn't pay that doesn't show up on a spreadsheet. You could put your OTIF fines in a nice Excel spreadsheet and go, oh my God, we paid this much in OTIF fines. You should take that number and multiply it by eight or 10 or whatever the factor is, but I guarantee it's a lot higher than you think it is and say it wasn't a thousand dollars in OTIF fines. It was total cost of OTIF times 10. Yeah. I mean, every CPG's balance sheet has a revenue and then an actual revenue, right? Well, that gap, that's out of stock. Right. So we talked about, I'm going to summarize these and I want to get your final thoughts on it. Then I want to talk a little bit about what's going on over at Zipline. So the true cost of OTIF failure with Andrew Lynch. And so when we talk about OTIF, we're talking about on time in full, which is a measurement scorecard that a lot of the retailers are using. So the first thing is the true cost, there's the fine. Everyone gets that. That's not missed. The second is this idea of lost sales. And I think that's no, that I think some people would understand that that's part of it. But then this, I think what we're missing is relationships. You're being, you're going to potentially fray those relationships with your customers and customers, customers, and you're potentially going to get weeded out. <laughs> it's the cost of no longer selling at a Walmart or a Costco. <laughs> that's a big cost. Then this involuntary sampling that is uh, trademarked by uh, <laughs> by Zipline and involuntary sampling. We've all done it as consumers. You go, oh, I want, I wanted to get blank, but instead I'll just try this. Oh, this isn't so bad. Maybe I'll switch. <laughs> and then there's another cost, which is going to be really hard to capture, but it's there. Is this supply chain inefficiency that's behind OTIF? OTIF is just the tip of the iceberg of the problems that you have in your supply chain. Yeah, that's exactly right. So final thoughts on this topic. You know, I think my final thought on this is that is going to be on brand for me in general is that I, you know, I think it's CPGs uh, and their retail partners and healthcare brands really need to look at logistics as an investment, right? It can't just be a cost center. It's too important to your brand and it's too important to your margin. You've got to look at it as an investment and you've got to find partners that will deliver you a return. You know, right now it's extremely challenging to control costs, right? You're seeing it in tender rejections and extreme volume increases and these huge import surges. Very, very hard to control landed costs. But what you can control is that all of your product gets to where it's supposed to be on time and in full, and it maximizes the gross margin of every one of those shipments. And the gross margins that, that is at risk is significantly greater than that which is at risk on transactional logistics buying. Right. Right. And I think what we're seeing in, across the whole industry, well, I should say Crince, three PLs and freight brokers when it comes to transportation, we're seeing margin compression. And I think we're going to continue to see margin compression because getting, you know, connect right now during COVID, connecting a, a load to a driver is very difficult or a truck to a, a load is very difficult. But 
overall, in the, over the last 10 years, it's getting easier and easier. But I think what's going to happen is there's going to be more companies like yours that say, hey, look, we're not just the guys who get you trucked. A lot of those can happen in an automated fashion. We don't expect to get 800 bucks for every truck we get, but we're going to have to be paid. And I think the only way you're going to find yourself getting paid more is adding more value across that whole end-to-end supply chain. And that's, again, that it's overused, but it's a supply chain partner. It can't just be I got you a truck and that's going to become less and less interesting to brands. But anyway, so before we, before we end this thing, tell us a little bit about more who you serve and give us your two cents on Zipline Logistics out of Columbus, Ohio. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, Zipline really was built from the ground up over the past 14 years to serve consumer packaged goods and healthcare brands that ship into retail and e-com distribution. As a result of that, the way we process orders, the way that we analyze data and, and deliver data through our proprietary shipper intelligence tool, to the way that we compensate our employees are all built to create a better logistics outcome for those brands. We offer a proprietary suite of software that our clients, large and small, are able to access in order to understand, you know, who are their most expensive customers to serve, which customers need new minimum order quantities, how disparate is their network, and, you know, where maybe they need a new warehouse. So delivering actionable insight, not just cost and on-time percentage. We deliver clients their real on-time percentage, their on-time in full, not just their, you know, was the truck on time for the appointment I set on-time delivery. So, you know, it's a different experience, 100% across the board, different than what you're going to find in another 3PL. As a result of that, our net promoter score, actually, logistics has a net promoter score average of 13, which is not a good score. It may or may not surprise you, even if you don't know anything about net promoter scores. Uh, Zipline consistently across our shipper, our carrier, our constantly, and our customer network scores a 74, which is a world-class score. We run that survey twice a year. We follow all best practices. You know, we're outperforming from an experience perspective, everybody in our space. And it's not because we're a blanket better than everybody else. It's because we built a process and a system and a business that serves a specific community. And we stand by, you know, that focus. I like it. I like it. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to Zipline Logistics in the show notes. I'll put a link to Andrew Lynch's LinkedIn profile and any other thing you want to give me or your marketing people want to give me, I'll slap that into the show notes. Thanks. Yeah, no, just the contact us form is the easiest way. All right. I like it. I like it. So, Andrew, I really do appreciate you taking the time. And I think this is a really interesting topic. And again, I think when you mentioned it, this idea of OTIF being just the beginning of the cost, the fines being just a small part of it, I was like, hmm, I didn't think about it. But this kind of came out of nowhere because a lot of times when I do podcasts, it's kind of hard to find what makes people different and better. And, you know, there's so much of discussion of, well, we'll give you visibility. Everybody says that. And they're not the, it's important. I'm not even saying it's not important, but to f- have something that you, yeah, you're right. It's table stakes. More and more, the bar just keeps rising in this business. You just can't be, I'll get you a truck anymore. It really is, this industry has had to grow up so quickly and it's continuing to. And, you know, what's interesting here is that the specialization is the name of the game. We're not more expensive than our competitors. That's what's so wild, is that not being a generalist allows us to deliver this community a totally different experience. But I'm not charging you more than Echo or see it like the truck is the same price. It's just what you're getting for it. And again, it's not because I'm better than Echo. I'm just I'm focused. And and that allows me to be different without costing more money. 
Right. We've done this podcast many times. Kevin Hill and I did a podcast called The Niches Have Riches, and we both experienced it working at 3PLs. He worked out in the oil fields, and they did really well in the oil fields. But then they said, hey, we're too exposed to the oil fields. Let's go get some other business. And I was doing a lot. We were in a lot in automotive where you're like, and why switch over to food, which I don't know anything about? Well, it doesn't make sense. So I love the fact that you're specializing, and uh, I love the fact that you're doing all this research, too it speaks well to where we're all heading in this business. Anyway, enough of my blather. Thank you so much, Andrew Lynch. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is always very much appreciated. And until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 